I realized that it would be impossible to have some level of success without understanding really the way a tech product works. Welcome to Lawagon Live. This week, we have two guests speaking to us. One is Robbie Kuma, who's the CTO and co-founder of Blue Heart, the sexual therapy app helping people have a happier, taboo-free sex life. Blue Heart is also part of the Antler program, an early-stage VC. Joining him is Walter Kagara, the founder of startup Triban, helping people share their favorite recommendations with their community and friends. Launching his startup after a career in banking, Walter did our first part-time boot camp at the Wagon, so knows what it's like to both be non-technical and technical as a founder. Keep listening to hear both their insights. Great, so I will introduce myself quickly. Um, I'm Walter Segarra. Hello, guys. Super happy to be here with uh, Celine, Robbie, and, uh, and Lars tonight, and for all the ones who are, who are joining. Uh, just quick introduction. Uh, when I think about, so I did Le Wagon Bootcamp, um, and I had a bio like everybody else. And my bio said, father of one, no, father of two, husband of one, not the other way around, and founder of Tribam, which uh, is probably a good way to, to introduce myself. So a family man with a few gray hair, as you can, as you can see. Um, I have actually done my whole career until a year and a half ago in uh, investment banking. Uh, so totally different world, working for large institutions in New York and London with lots of uh, layers of management, with lots of processes, with lots of regulation, and decided to leave the last bank I worked for about a year and a half ago to do a few things, um, two of which being to uh, decide to launch uh, Tribam, uh, my, my startup, and as part of that, to do the uh, coding bootcamp with, uh, with Le Wagon. Um, hi, I'm Robbie. Um, so I'm the CTO and co-founder of uh, Blue Heart. Um, so we are, I would describe us in four words as headspace for sex therapy. So we're trying to create a, uh, a platform, well, create a new concept, which is digital sex therapy. Um, and we don't really know what that, well, when we started, we didn't really know what that looked like, uh, as no one had really done it before. And so we've been spending the last um, nine months or so since we finished Antler, building the best version of our product, which we have soft launched. And we're going to be doing our sort of full, like real, real launch. Uh, I'm going to say soon. Uh, I'm not going to say exactly when, because I don't know. Um, but uh, so my, my kind of journey into this was, so uh, as Lars mentioned, I, I came through Antler. Um, before I had, uh, before I joined Antler, I'd, I'd uh, never been a founder before. Um, and it seemed like um, kind of the best part for me as I had kind of a lot of experience working in tech, but didn't necessarily know any good co-founders and uh, met my business partner who was sort of had the opposite problem in that he didn't know any good tech co-founders. Uh, so uh, Antler kind of matched us up and well, I suppose we matched ourselves ourselves up uh, during Antler and uh, and we kind of hit it off and, and uh, now I'm here. Um... So just to, to, to share with the group what, what Tribam is about. Um, so it's a free mobile app, um, which actually launched live uh, a couple of months ago. So still quite, uh, quite recent, which allows any one of us to share and discover recommendations with people we know, people we trust. So recommendations are things like restaurants, hotels, music, movies, TV series, and books. And the, the key idea is really to be able to get inspiration, um, 
to discover new experiences, um, but also to help plan hopefully soon the days when we can travel again and and, and find you know an, an organized travel for for hotels and, and, and restaurants. Um, it's been a year and a half in the in the making uh, from the day when you know I started to really you know go for it. It's an idea that I've had actually ten years ago. I was looking at my notes, uh, discussing with uh, you know my brother and some friends, um, and finally, finally now having left my previous life, doing my midlife crisis. So instead of uh, buying a, a stupid car or doing other stupid things, you know, becoming an entrepreneur is the thing that I decided to uh, to do. I would be happy to share a bit more about that. Great. And what about you, Ravi? Then. Yeah, so I can give a bit more of a, of a personal backstory. I guess I kind of covered the startup journey so far a little bit. But um, so I guess I've, I've always really been interested in, in tech and coding. Actually, uh, my mum was a programmer. Uh, so I don't know if I just kind of inherited it from that. But it, like certainly um, she was quite keen for me to learn how to use computers. And we had a computer in the house when I was quite young. Uh, which not everyone did when I was quite young. Um, and um, I guess I, I first started doing some like kind of coding when I was probably about 11 years old. Obviously, I was terrible at it. Um, but kind of eventually, I kind of followed quite a, like a old school traditional route into programming. Like I did, um, I did computer science at Cambridge and then worked for a bunch of startups kind of in, in the area around that. Uh, well, sorry, worked for one startup in the area around that for a bunch of years. And uh, I guess kind of got, into, got to this kind of feeling that like I really wanted to be doing something that was going to help people in some way. So I, um, I kind of tried a few different industries. I, I worked for some time in education technology. Um, I worked for some time um, as a, uh, just a consultant doing kind of uh, shorter projects. As a, as a freelancer. Um, most recently, before Antler, I worked for a, a head tech company, uh, sorry, a med tech company. And I found it quite inspiring. I didn't particularly want to stay at that company. Um, and I guess I'd known throughout my kind of, I guess, like eight year career at that point that I definitely wanted to become a founder at some point. Uh, but I wouldn't necessarily have said that I knew exactly the best way of, of uh, kind of going about it. And I knew that what I wanted to do was I, I, I guess it's kind of like meaning of life stuff. It's like you, you, you do all this labor and you want it to be something that's, that's going to contribute meaningfully in some way. Um, and so what I really wanted to do was to, to create a startup where like, I could be proud of what the effect it was having on the world. So, um, but, it, but I didn't really have anything more specific than that, <laughs> uh, which is probably quite vague. But I, um, I, I came across Antler. Actually, I met uh, Antler at a careers fair, literally the weekend after I finished that job in, in MedTech. I, uh, I met some people from Antler at a careers fair and, and I kind of, I'd heard of similar, uh, similar startup generator programs. And uh, in fact, some of my uh, some of my friends have actually uh, gone through those, and so I kind of knew a little bit about the process. So, and it, it kind of made Antler, Antler specifically made a lot of sense to me because they focused more on people who had uh, like industry experience already, which I did, and the idea of kind of going through uh, a program where you're going to meet like seventy other people who 
have uh, complementary skill sets seem like a really good way to meet a co-founder. Like, I guess in my case, like I'm a tech person, all my friends are tech people, not all my friends, but a lot of my friends are tech people. And I don't know in my social circles, you know, anyone who like uh, is more of a, like on the commercial side of things. And actually my uh, co-founder who I ended up meeting through Antler, he was, uh, yeah, like I said, the kind of the opposite side of things. So he didn't really know any uh, potential CTOs. And so me and him got, got speaking about different ideas. Actually, we, we met in the, in the second week of Antler. Um, I pitched a business which I thought was a great idea to the entire group. And then he came and told me that someone had already done it, which is kind of a similar kind of, uh, this kind of a, a story that happens a lot, I think, in, 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 uh, when, when, you're trying to, when you're trying to create a startup, but you don't have the idea yet most ideas that you have are either you kind of kill them quite quickly or someone's already done it and been wildly successful or somebody's already done it and died uh, startup died hopefully not them and um uh then we came well satch mentioned my sorry my co-founder Satchin mentioned uh mentioned this idea about um sex therapy and i liked it and i thought it sounded really cool to be working on sex for a living um but uh but I wasn't completely convinced by how many people would want to buy it. And so we did some research into like market sizing and I was like, okay, we, ha we have not been able to kill this idea. We've been like focusing on it for a couple of weeks now and trying to kill it so we can move on to something else if it's not right. And we've not been able to, so maybe we should actually really pursue this. And so we did, and, uh, we passed the, the IC, which is, uh, so NIC is an investment committee where um, all the people who are related to making the kind of the financial decision of who Antler invests in kind of get together and you pitch to them. And uh, if they like you, then you get money from them. And yeah, they liked us. And um, and I guess we've been building the company since. And yeah, I mean, I guess you come out of Antler feeling pretty good about yourself. And then suddenly you're like, oh, now I actually have to do the next bit of the real work. And from what I from what I hear, this this kind of cycle keeps happening over and over again. You know, you 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 raise your pre-seed from Antler then you really struggle really hard to raise your seed. And then at the end of that, you're like, okay, well, now the real work begins as you then have to work your way to series A and onwards. Um, but yeah, I guess like that's kind of what we're all here for, right? Yeah, that's, that that's, it sounds really, really great. Um, actually, the, that's interesting because you gave us a little bit like where you saw a gap in the market because like one of your ideas was to see like, oh, is anyone else did uh, or pitch or create a, a startup like that? And you saw like no one did it. So you were thinking like, yeah, that could be like a, a good thing to do. And yeah, great. I think it's really interesting. I never heard about something like that before. So it's really great. So now I can jump to back to Walter and ask you, you well, uh, did you see like a gap in the market? Did you see like uh, something that could be uh, done to be like successful or like what happened with your with your idea? Yeah, sure. Um, actually, when I, when I think about it, um, there's really almost like two two aspects to it. One which is very practical, and one which is actually the the vision. So, if I start with the practical aspect, um, which actually is something that I came across myself, which was using uh, tools for finding recommendations, and we can think all think of at least five, if not ten, different things we can use every day, and we have for a long time. To get recommendations, right? The advisors, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it, right? There's a lot of those already out there. The problem I was encountering as a user myself, and that's what I was looking for initially, is that you go to TripAdvisor, which is, I think is a good example. Um, I've been using TripAdvisor a lot historically, 
because it's very easy to use. You find a hotel with 2,000 recommendations. Great. Two problems there. The first one is that any one of those individuals giving recommendations are different from you, Celine. So what works or doesn't work for them may work or not work for you. It's difficult to interpret those reviews and recommendations just because we don't know the people. And the second problem, which again is not specific to TripAdvisor, but across all of those platforms is that reviews have so much value economically, they get manipulated all the way to blatant fraudulent activities. People went in jail in Italy because they were managing businesses whose job was to create fake recommendations on things like TripAdvisor, Facebook, or, or others. So as a user, the practical issue was, how do I solve that? Well, the other way we get recommendations is by asking our friends and family. You want to go uh, away for a weekend in Rome. You have a friend who just went there. You know that person. You know what it means if the person recommends or not the hotel. That single recommendation has a lot more value to you than 2,000 you can find otherwise. So that's the first, which is like the very practical basic, but that was the core of the, of the idea. The second, which is even more important for, for me personally and behind Tribam is the issue with what social platforms have become. And we've uh, all read a lot about some of the trust issues on some of the main ones out there, trust issues between the platform and their users. And actually I realized that a lot of those came from a very single problem, which is the business model. Now, I've been in banking for 22 years, so sorry if I think about the business model right away, but, but it drives a lot of things, right? Where are the, the interests between the parties? And most of those platforms, not all of them, are based on selling ads. That's their main business model, which means that to sell ads, they need to sell data, which means that the clients, the customers of those, of those platforms are not the users. Their clients are the advertisers, which makes sense. The users are only the fuel which feed those platforms, which creates a conflict between the users and the platform. And that resonated very strongly with me at the time. And when we built Tribam, you know, at the core of the vision is, Tribam is here to serve our members. We are a tool, we are a space at their service. Um, so commitment on the business model, we will never do ads, we will never sell data. And that's, that's the vision, to, to, to have a place where the members can have trust in who they see on the platform because it's people they know and who can trust the platform itself because the platform is not trying to use the users to do some other type of, of activities. That's true. I think uh, it's really hard this day with capitalism country where we live in, everything is driven by money and to be like, is that true? Is that reliable? Can I be sure like this is going to work or it's it's really, really hard. So I think it's it's a great idea. What is quite interesting is like both of your startup and project are to serve and help people like in different ways, but like in the same goal of like making sure um, people can uh, get something uh, that will help them. Something that's really, really great. Um, so I think um, also which interested with uh, uh, both of your startup is like both of you as in the like really recent lunch or uh, for uh, Ruby like soft lunch. 
So can you uh, tell us a little bit uh, more about that? Like, I think everyone's really wonder because when you do, when you have your project, you have your idea and then you have, it looks like a tiny step between the idea and, and, and put it through and like put yourself out there and create your startup. But this is a huge gap. I mean, like a lot of people have ideas and ideas fade and ideas like <laughs> go away because like, I think there is, most of people are in the face, like I want to, but 10% would be like, I am doing it. So I think that would be interesting to hear from you guys. Uh, how did you manage to go from the idea all the way to launching the product? Um, so, okay, so I guess I should talk about what a soft launch is. So it's kind of where you just put your product out there and start for example, running ads at it to get a small number of people to use it. If you wanted to get loads of people to use it, you wouldn't take this approach. You would do like a big PR launch, you'd run a big marketing campaign, all of these kind of things. But a soft launch is kind of where you don't do any of these things. So the reason why we soft launch, obviously, it, you might think you might want to get more users because that means more money or whatever, more people help. <laughs> um, but actually, um, we wanted a small number of users because our product wasn't there yet. The reason why I wasn't there yet is not because it was bad, it's because we wanted to release something as early as possible so we could get feedback from users from the market, etc. as early as possible. Like the number one risk that you have as a founder is is what I call value risk. I mean, I've come, I haven't come up with that term. But um, the number one risk is value risk, which is that you're building something which people don't want. Um, and the best way to test that is to see if people actually have the problem that you think they have and they have it so much that they're willing to use your shitty MVP that you've built in like two months. Um, and if you can get people to pay for that, that's a good signal that you should keep doing what you're doing. Uh, and if you can't get people to pay for that, then that maybe means that you need to focus on something else. Or maybe you need to talk to those people who didn't pay for it and, and, and understand what, what, uh, what's wrong with your assumptions. Um, so the re yeah, the reason why we soft launch is because we essentially gives us feedback in the forms of uh, qualitative feedback in terms of um, like we can actually ask real users of our app, uh, you know, what what was I have I have a, I use the ABC. So what was awesome, what was bad and what was confusing. Um, and we just we, we always ask them these questions to try and understand how we can improve either the product offering from a value point of view or, or sometimes from a usability point of view as well. Um, and then we can also get um, quantitative data as well. So we can see like how well ads convert um, from our landing page, for example. And that can tell us about a lot about, you know, do people actually want what we're trying to sell? Or we can we, we talk about like um, how well the uh, onboarding funnel performs, for example, in terms of like what percentage drop off you get. And that lets you see... Um, you know, how, how willing people are to enter an email address or how people willing are to actually pay cash or these kind of things. And you can kind of understand um, a lot more, a lot more detail about the users. Cause I guess, I guess like the main thing that you're trying to solve for with the soft launch is you're trying to understand your users better. Okay. Maybe, maybe just to, to, to echo on, on, on exactly that. Um, I agree that talking to your audience, finding a way to engage your audience, is the most important but the most difficult thing to do as, as a founder. The most important thing, because Robbie said it very clearly, one thing is to have a great idea, another thing is to have a great idea that somebody else wants. Uh, 
And it is the most difficult thing I find to do is, well, first, in terms of accessing your audience, so just finding a practical way to engage into that dialogue, uh, because there you need to be careful. You know, when I ask my mother, she always loved everything I do, but this, she's probably not the right person I should ask. So you need to find a way to get to the people who don't have an angle with you and therefore will be neutral enough in the feedback they give you. It's also the most difficult because it's difficult not to fall in love with the product you build, right? We're all convinced, every single one of us, that whatever we're building is the best thing ever. And by the way, if you're not convinced about it, it's going to be difficult to get all the way to the end. So you need to have that conviction, but at the same time, enough distance with your thing, your baby, that you've sweated and that you've spent a lot of time and your energy and your money to develop, being ready to change it, modify it, tweak it based on what people you know, tell you about your product. Uh, and it's not, it's not, uh, it's really not easy, but that's, that's absolutely, uh, absolutely key. Agreed. The other thing, sorry, just the other part of your question, which was, you know, uh, the, the challenge when you, when, when you start, uh, and again, I'm going to pick up on something that Ruby said earlier, which was your initial idea, Ruby, seems that it, was, it had already been done before. Um, it's very rare to come up with an idea that has not been done before. And by the way, most of the super successful companies out there that we all relate to, anyone you, you can name, none of them were original ideas. All of them were actually copying or getting inspired by something else. Um, just the way they did it, the, the time when they did it, when they did it, and how they did it was different. And that made the difference. YouTube is a great example. You had you know, tons of platforms before doing video sharing, which all you know, fell or didn't go very far. And then YouTube arrived at the right time when the cost of the bandwidth came down and, and they, 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 they were clever enough to invert actually the business model not to get the publishers, you know, the users to pay for access, but to pay them, you know, ad revenues to, to publish on the platform. Fantastic idea, right? So, so, yes, it's important to understand your competitive landscape, but don't use that as a reason not to do your idea, because it's very difficult and rare to find something that nobody has, has done before. True. I think also it's a lot of things now is done to marketing and how you're going to market your product and how you're going to launch it. And, and I think uh, that's, that's also like, a, that's why you need to uh, actually like look at the competitors and maybe find the way they haven't communicate uh, the like, and you might find a gap in there. Uh, that, that's really true. But also originals, ideas, and like completely like new product can be complete, like totally revolutionary. So that could be great. Great. Also, Ruby, you said like you mentioned your company as like the head, headspace for sex therapy. So you're also like using like kind of like competitors or someone like you, you can compare yourself with, uh, uh, which is, I think, yeah, today, like original ideas, it would be really hard to have, uh, but yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And also I have a question guys for you that both of you now, you mentioned that you are technical founders. So Robbie, you're a CTO and, uh, I guess also you, uh, Walter and you, the founder and you, you created the app. So. So I know Walter, so you did the bootcamp. Uh, did you, because you said you had this idea about uh, your, your company 10 years ago, uh, did you think like, okay, I am going to 
uh, retrain myself in technical skills, learn to code, learn how to create uh, an MVP and an app, and then I would be able to do my ideas. Did you want it to have this thing like, I want to do this by myself? And for Robbie, like, yeah, same, you, you mentioned that you were only known um, as some friends that they were CTO and you were looking for the contrary, like someone who was not technical. So you were uh, looking more for, uh, you said, the commercial part of it. So can you guys uh, tell sure. us more about that? To be totally honest, I don't consider myself a technical founder, but I consider myself a more technical founder than I was before doing Le Wagon. So let me, let me, let me explain. Um, so yes, when I decided again about a year and a half ago to go and 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 do actually launch Tribal for for real, I realized that it would be impossible to have some level of success without understanding really the way a tech product works, and that was not my background at all before that. So I looked at different options and came across you know Le Wagon and and. You know, was convinced that that program, the bootcamp, would give me the right basics to do a few things. One is to understand the product that I was going to build with other people around me. Uh, so I'm not the one who coded uh, the app. You know, I, I work with developers to, to do that. But I wanted to understand enough of the different parts, enough of the process to be able to do it in a, in a better manner. Um, and, and when I think then having done Le Wagon for six months, I did the, the part-time version, which is two nights a week, you know, 6.30, 9.30, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and the whole of Saturday for six months. You may remember that I'm married, have kids, and that was kind of a big commitment for me and for, and for the family, but I loved every single minute of it, even more so because I try to get the kids to participate in that, in that process. Um, and, uh, and, and what it gave me is the ability to work a lot better with my developers in, in, in both directions. One, me being able to articulate better some of the things I was thinking to work in the, in the app and, and, and hopefully did a better job of doing that than I would have done without the benefit of the, of the bootcamp. Actually, three things. Two, um, call their bluff as well, right? So, and actually it happened a couple of times where sometimes it's easy to say, no, it's not possible, or yes, but it's gonna take you know, five years. And then was able to Google, go on Stack Overflow and you know, came back to them with the, the solution. I would not have been able to implement the solution, but at least I was able to find the solution for, for them to do. More importantly, number three, to better understand the constraints, the limitations, right? And, and therefore, hopefully being able to be a better partner to them because some of my requests were less, um, were less theoretical and more, and more applied. So um, definitely, uh, and, and because I don't have a co-founder and I didn't want to have one, um, I could have you know, try to find somebody like Robbie, you know, a real tech co-founder. And because it was not an option for me, I decided to get enough of that tech understanding to be able to work well with, with developers. 
Um, so I guess my answer to this is that I guess if I was going to join a uh, a tech startup, what's the most useful thing I could be doing with the skill set that I have? Then it's it's going to be coding. Like it it wouldn't make sense for me to you know run a marketing campaign or or be the commercial founder. So I think like for me it's actually kind of the question is the other way around, which is like if I if I want to start a startup, what role am I going to be doing? Um, and there's there's actually lots of different types of CTOs as well. So there are some like me right now where I'm very much hands-on and most of the product was coded by me. Uh, we have hired another developer now, um, but probably more than half of it has been coded by me. And um, there are other founders, there are other technical founders. I, I guess the, the first uh, CTO that I, that I worked under when I uh, did my first job out of university he was really a salesperson and the reason why he was a, he was his job title was a cto is because the clients needed because we were selling a very technical product the clients wanted to uh speak to the cto whenever a sales sale was happening and so they kind of just made the head of like the head technical person on the sales team the cto because it's more kind of flattering for the customers that way um and then the, i guess there's also like in, in, a, in a much larger organization the cto is going to have a lot more management than i do right now i mean I, I have some management but for most of the most of the time that the startups been running really my job has, has just been doing uh coding and, and and product work um I wouldn't say being a code monkey. I actually think if you just want to be told what code to write, then you shouldn't be a startup founder because that's not really how this whole thing works. Um, but um, but yeah, for me, it, it made a lot more sense for me to for me to be hands on. But there are other startups that don't have a technical co-founder, and that that does that does work for them as well. Um, it depends what product you're building, but you can even build a technical product without a technical co-founder. But you need to have on the founding team you need to have enough of the relevant skill sets that you know a vc is going to invest in you and give you the money to hire a dev team um but yeah there are plenty of people who who do have who who uh you know who aren't a cto who do manage to raise money uh we sometimes people raise money just with a with a powerpoint right um but that's because they have got enough of the right background and the right skill set that that powerpoint is amazing and is you know the pitch deck for something that that is enough that people believe in you so there's a lot of ways into this and there's a lot of ways to not have a CTO as well, if that makes sense. That That's really interesting. I think uh, I heard and like you, you can tell like that you don't need to be a tech person to be a founder, but you need to understand everything around tech. That's really important. So like that's why I think what uh, explained like why he did the bootcamp because if you want to seems like you know what you're talking about and where you are going to when you are heading to you need to just like prove and have this vocabulary and like explain like uh, what is your product about and and what is your goals and where you you want to where do you want to go for the future so I think that's really important to at least upskill yourself into like some, uh, some tech aspect to sound like at least uh, you know what you're doing uh, uh, yeah for raising money or to just to to go further with your with your um, startup. This is really interesting. I think we have uh, some quite good questions as well we can jump into. Um, so we have a question for Leo asking, do you think that platforms with advert driven business models 
inevitably end up serving advertisers over over users. So I think that's what you were talking about a little bit, Walter. So that would be interesting sure. to, to sure. hear. And, and I'm happy to take it. And it's a it, it's a very precise question, which is which is which is well well worded because indeed I'm always a bit black and white in the way I express things. Um, but to your question, Leo, I don't think it's inevitable that advertisers will be served above users. And actually, I'm sure we can find examples of sound platform based on advertising models where the users are not negatively impacted by the, by the model. But structurally, I think it's a lot more difficult. So you need to really be extremely deliberate as an organization who gets all of your economics from the advertisers to still every single day do the best you can to serve the users or at least not to negatively impact them. Um, I mean, one example, right? And again, I, some people have written books about it, which are much more interesting than what I can tell you. But by the way, one is called uh, Zucked, a fantastic book about the former advisor to, uh, to uh, Mr. Facebook. Um, uh, so one example is engagement. Uh, when you sell advertising, you need your users to spend as much time as possible either on the website or in the app. It's not always the good thing for the users to spend time. It's a good thing if they get something positive that they are looking for out of the experience, absolutely. But you know, using tricks, be they emotional or be they in terms of design or whatever, to keep them in, just so that then when you go to advertisers, you can show longer time on platform, you know, is, is not a great thing. So long story short, I don't think it is inevitable. I think it's more difficult. Uh, I've been asked that question many times for Tribam, you know, can we not do both? And, you know, I want to be black and white. Uh, and, and because if we're not black and white, I think people may, may not see it. And therefore, I say it publicly, and we put it on the on our website. We will not sell the data of our users on Tribam. Yeah, no, I think also that's like you said earlier. That's the core of of your business as well. I mean, that that that's what also define you as a business. Uh, yeah. It's really important to just like stick with your gut of what you're doing. And I think if you had this idea ten years ago, you must have like. Uh, evaluate what you are doing at the moment so and that could be like yeah. a really good uh, apc actually so so that's great if i may because i i see uh, another question from lina eugene yeah. who is related actually because then i was listening to myself and 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 maybe that question is the, is the next one which is so the, the question if i if i read it for everybody is how do you envision to make money without ads as people are used to and expect to have things for free let me be blunt. Um, in our world, free does not exist. I agree with the statement. We all be, we have all been used to using free products, but free cannot exist. It means that if it's free, there is another way, and there's a, a quid pro quo, another exchange uh, to uh, to make that make that viable. What does it mean for Tribam? It means that the product will not only be free. So the model is simple, is the good old freemium model, 
where the app, the way we see it today, and the way we're going to see it for some time, is free for everybody forever. With no ads, that's a fact, that's a commitment. We then plan later to add additional features as a package, which will be optionals. And if people who are the power users on Tribam want to use those features, then they will be offered the features on a subscription basis. And then it's their decision to pay or not pay for the subscription to get the services. But at least they know what they get. So that's as simple as that. It's not new. It has been going on for, for, for some time. There are some great you know, apps out there like Visco, you know, uh, and Instagram, but you know, with proper values and, and vision who are based exactly on that, on that model and a few other ones. And that's the way we, we, we tend to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a pretty common business model. I think that's great because it gives as well like uh, the envy for the uh, customer to just like uh, have a look and see what's happening. And then um, I think also what we what we can talk about like about apps is like I think the question from Lena was pretty interesting in the fact like that's true that we in our head is free because technically we're not putting our credit uh, numbers there to get mm -hmm. something. So we, we call it free, but every marketer knows that it's not free. Like there is, as you say, selling data or other, other things to do. Um, but I think- if, if, I, if, I, if I may, people should be paid to use Facebook or other services like Facebook. I don't want to just pick at them, right? But let, let's remember that those companies, business models are producing billions of dollars of value for the shareholders using the, the fuel from the users. And actually, some people have, have, have said it, you know, you know, users should be paid something given the value that they put into those into those networks because of the of the ad model. It, it would actually be quite a reasonable amount. I think the last time I checked, Facebook makes about 20 pounds per user in the UK. Uh, so, you know, if you got paid, that's per year. So if you got paid 20 pounds a year to use Facebook, that wouldn't be bad. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, okay, great. I think we can. I think we have a question. Maybe Ruby, if you would like to answer or, or, or Walter, as you want. Um, it's someone asking, how did you attract? So it's quite the same uh, related. So how did you uh, attract the the right users to get most uh, relevant and quality feedback for your soft lunch? That's a good question, actually. Um, yeah, so I mean, we tried a few different approaches. I guess, I guess, like I, I'm not aware of an exact science here. I think often, like, kind of more like product decisions like this tend to be you form a whole bunch of imperfect tests, and then you try and come up with like kind of a unified theory from their results. Um, so I guess like one of the main ways that we tried to do this was we ran a lot of Google Ads without spending very much money. And we saw the cost effective of, the, of, of cost effectiveness of those for different types of users. But we didn't just run people into the app with our ads. We also ran people into a type form, so that we could. Uh, if you if you don't know, type form is just a it's an online tool for creating questionnaires. Um, so we were basically using ads to get people to fill out a questionnaire. So that kind of gives you a few bits of information because you obviously get all the information from the questionnaire, but it also tells you which types of uh, questionnaire answers converts the best with, with Google Ads. And uh, you can obviously try this with lots of different marketing channels as well. But this 
this was kind of an imperfect test. Another, another imperfect test was we went to our domain expert pretty early on. We brought on an advisor who is an expert in sex therapy and a professor at a university. And um, her name's Dr. Catherine Hurtline. And we, we went to her and, and we basically asked her, like, who are your clients right now? Like, can we speak to them? Obviously, we couldn't. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but she gave us like a, a picture of, of kind of the, the demographic that they would be coming from. Um, and then we also spoke to a few other people. So we spoke to um, we spoke to somebody who used to be a product manager at Babylon, who worked on their um, on their kind of. Uh, I guess it was when when the system was kind of like kind of Wizard of Oz, where uh, you know there's actually a, a man behind the curtain operating this big user interface. So they used to have a thing where you could search for a symptom, and it looked like their AI was coming up with the answer, but it was actually a nurse. And um, we spoke to the person who was a product manager of that team and, and asked them about what their demographics were and that kind of thing. Um, and so you kind of build up a picture from talking to people and from doing your own research. You kind of build up a picture of, of who those who those people are. And I guess like the information you learn from this, you refine, you refine, you refine until you come up with a better, a better and more specific test. And uh, eventually, you kind of settle on something that's that's quite uh, accurate. And then um, after the app had been soft launched for a while, we kind of got into uh, having uh, user interviews with like repeat users over and over again. So we we have a couple of people who we we uh, we have we now hire an in-house therapist as well as our advisor, and we have our in-house uh, therapist call them up uh, once a month to ask them how they're doing with the app. And um, basically, anytime. Uh, anytime somebody didn't convert because of price, we would, and, and emailed us to tell us this, we would somehow convert them into, we will give you free access to the app if you're willing to give us uh, good feedback. Obviously, we did this after they'd already seen the pricing page and decided not to. So it wasn't like that. They, they didn't know this existed until later on. But we basically took all these different approaches to build up these like kind of user personas. And then we got to the point where we could actually talk to our users and see if those personas actually matched. And one of the things you can do is you can actually pick people out of the your analytics. If you if you believe a certain user persona would act in a certain way using the app, you can actually find these people in your analytics tools. And if they previously consented to uh, being asked about these kind of things, then you can actually you know send them an email and, and ask them. And and uh, in a few cases, they'll be very vocal, especially if they really like your product. And you know the person they're speaking to in our case is a qualified sex therapist, which helps. And um, and that that person can then ask them questions to validate our assumptions on, you know, is your user persona actually correct um, based on what you would believe the behavior of that persona to be? And so you kind of it, you kind of. Yeah, I guess I guess the approach is just do a, doing a whole bunch of different things which are kind of related and using each one of them to build information so you can refine your testing process, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's really good advice, actually. I think uh, one of the most important things uh, when you launch your startup is to put yourself out there and not be afraid to reach out to, to, to different also like I think there are plenty of like people that are willing to help. I think we live in the world like sometimes we think about, oh, like again, like everything needs to be paid or like people don't have like time to help and stuff like that. But for example, like London, it's crazy for networking. So that's the thing like I think people should like 
uh, keep in mind and just like uh, trying to reach out like even on LinkedIn like if you see something someone that you might be interested in like what they're doing the company or the job title I think it's it's good and we have all these tools now like all these communication tools for free <laughs> that like we can use and and it and it's and it's really great to to just reach out to people maybe Celine if I may to complete exactly that which is you know just ask right and it's amazing how people can be helpful uh and and for us to complete some of our research so we use similar techniques to what ruby was 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 describing but as one of the thing is um and i'd never thought it would work i came across an app developed in the us which had a similar idea to to try them and then doing a bit of research, realized that they launched in about 2012 and then closed in 2014. Uh, didn't know more than that. I found on LinkedIn the name of the founder of that app. And I reached out to him out of the blue. Hey, hi, I'm Walter. I'm in London, working on something which seems similar to you know, your thing. If you had 10 minutes, five minutes, one minute, we'd love to talk to you to compare your experience. You know, I was at the very beginning of, of my process. But and the guy is, is of course, in America. Um, if it was France, for either French people around, around the room, reaching out to somebody who you don't know to ask him questions about a failure, you would never hear about the person ever, right? <laughs> he responded in 30 minutes saying, you know, he was not super available that day, but he sent me an email long like this giving me his whole story. This is what we did. This is what worked. This is what didn't work. And actually we ended up closing because of that, right? And then we exchanged, you know, a few emails over three days, which was incredible, but that was extremely useful information because of course, so relevant to what we're doing. So, so to your respective points, you know, do ask. It's amazing how people are ready to, to help actually. Um, if there is one question you would like to pick up, I think you can see all the question there. We have, oh yeah, a good question from Alex is like, do you have any advice on how to choose the right digital agency to develop your product, especially as a very early stage? Yeah, very, very difficult exercise uh, because, you know, of course you need to do it towards the beginning of the process. And again, in my case, I, I did that just while I was starting Le Wagon. So I had even less technical background than I had <laughs> at the end of it, obviously, but, you know, because I wanted to really to go, to go fast. Um, so two things. One, um, as we just said, talk to people. And the trust I made, so just to share it with, 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 with the group and people can, can you know, uh, do whatever they want with it. But what I did is actually I started working from a co-working space in London called Tech Hub, um, which is uh, a WeWork, but much better, much better because there is a very strong community element to it. Uh, that's what they sold me on before I joined. I can say now, having spent a year there, that yes, you get a great desk and, you know, the facilities are nice, but more importantly, the community is incredible. And I had people offering their help right, left and center with zero interest for them. Um, and in terms of the digital agencies, I first, before talking to any agency, I spent a lot of time talking to founders 
asking them the way they went, right? You know, freelancers, hiring uh, developers using an agency, agency in the UK, agency, you know, in India, abroad, you know, all the different combinations. So first thing, helped a lot. The second thing I did then, I started talking to agencies, and it went well until the very last stage when you need to make your decision. And of course, the budgets can be quite significant, so you don't want to throw money out, the, out of the window. So I worked with a, um, I think he calls himself a consulting CTO. Um, so it's somebody who actually is probably a lot more like Robbie, with a lot of very strong technical background, who understands all of the aspects to the very detailed, but who you can work with for a given set of time, right? And we work together, in particular, to review the final proposal from the last two agencies, help me understand the, the, uh, the answers they had given, the questions that I had not asked that I should have asked, and how to, uh, how to interpret that. Uh, uh, Rocket Surgeon, just to mention it, is the name of the, uh, of the, of the, of the company of the guy who, uh, who I worked with. Um, and he was incredibly useful because he was sitting on my side of the table. He even came with me in the final meetings with each of the two agencies to ask all the right questions and, and then help me to, to choose the, the, the agency. Um, a bit of a shout out, the agency I work with is called Bourne Agency, uh, based in Shoreditch uh, in, in London. Um, fantastic um, and very, you know, very, very good choice. Yeah, I think, do you want to say something, Ruby, about that or do you want to jump to another question? Well, actually, something that came up there was, um, or it came up previously as well, is, is kind of the, this idea of like kind of reaching out to people. Um, and I kind of want to echo that because actually that's how we met our advisor. And that's kind of one of the kind of important people in the founding team was just um, we, we literally just emailed everyone who'd written a book in this space and asked them if they wanted to work with us in some way. And uh, she immediately replied, well, I mean, she was in a different time zone, but she replied within an hour, which was like seven o'clock in the morning, her time uh, to, to basically say like, yeah, call me today. Um, and and uh, actually, it's, it's amazing how much of this world is kind of based on references and introductions and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm new to this world. I've only been in it for just under a year. And like, this is one of the things that I've, I've definitely learned is that is is really who you know is actually way more important than I had initially kind of uh, factored into it. And actually, one of the things that Anne definitely helped with was helping me to meet these people. I mean, I guess like you know, if Lars is doing an introduction to my on my behalf, you know, they look at his job title and it's like partner at Antler, and they see that he used to work at McKinsey and all of this stuff, and so he can make these introductions a lot easier than than some of these uh, first time founders can, uh, myself included. Um, and I think uh, the the kind of agency question is is quite interesting as well because I think it, it kind of works the same way. Like I get a lot of uh, emails now, and I'm I'm sure I'm sure Walter is the same. Where you get a lot of emails from digital agencies who want to work with you who you've never heard of before and you don't know anything about them, and you know why why would you trust them? But if I got a recommendation from somebody I knew, then things would be completely different. And I think like if there is somebody who you want to talk to, this goes for trying to raise VC money as well there's somebody in a VC that you want to talk to, the best way to do it is to find somebody who they trust and convince that person to help you. And sometimes these chains can be quite long, but that is really the best way of 
of getting getting in front of uh, you know the top VCs or or like if you're if you're trying to form an agency or consultancy of, of getting the best clients is to find someone they trust and and get that person to sell you to them. Yeah, that's exactly uh, Walter's idea. So yeah, I'm, 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 so j j just to be clear for everybody, I didn't pay Robbie to place an ad for Tribam, <laughs> but yes, it's all about recommendations you can trust and re getting recommendations on anything from somebody that you can trust is worth you know, 2,000 articles on, on, on the web, definitely. Thanks for listening to Lewagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button. 